Welcome to the Magic and Alchemy podcast, where we talk about witchcraft, setting intentions, forgotten folklore, and mythology. Created by Tamed Wild, Magic and Alchemy is a collection of stories, rituals, and articles crafted by a variety of creators and writers, including myself, Kristen Lizenby, and my co-host, Kate Ballou. Hello, and welcome back to the Magic and Alchemy podcast. I'm Kate Ballou. And I'm Kristen Lizenby. How's it going, Kristen? I'm feeling good. Happy to be here. Mm -hmm, Also mm -hmm. curious what listener questions have popped up in the podcast email lately. Yeah, actually. So today we got one via DM. um, And this is a listener question from Petrichor Daydream asking us, quote, do you know of any folklore about magnolias or the symbology of these trees and flowers? End quote. Love this question. Um, We haven't ever talked about magnolias really on here, I don't think. Mm -mm. But yeah, I love it. I grew up with a magnolia tree outside of my window, um, which is sadly no longer there. So love being reminded of it and you know magnolias for those who don't know they are flowering trees they've been around for thousands of years and are considered one of the first flowering plants actually so fossil remains reveal that magnolias have been living on earth for over 100 million years talk about magic (laughs) yeah for sure so what did you find Kristen? You know, I love this question um, because I love magnolias, obviously, and they're stunning. And Mm -hmm. I didn't grow up with one outside my bedroom window, but my neighbor a couple houses down has one and I'm always eyeing Mm. them. They're so beautiful. Um, But yeah, I also did some digging into magnolia history and lore. And I also found what you found that they've been around for like 100 million years, which is so mind boggling um, because they were around before bees evolved, it said. Yeah. (laughs) Sorry, my mind's blown about that. (laughs) No, I thought the same thing. And so it's believed that since bees, you know, were yet to exist, that beetles were pollinating these flowers, which really speak to the perseverance of this plant <laughs> listeners you can't see but if you could see kate's face like her jaw is just like on the floor right now I'm like beetles how did it's amazing okay continue sorry <laughs> Well, I also found, you know, like with all things that this flower's role varies, you know, culture to culture, but magnolias typically bloom in spring and are incorporated into spring festivals. And according to Japanese philosophy, all flowers have their own language. So according to the Japanese language of flowers, magnolias represent that which comes naturally to us, harmony and a love of self, neighbor and nature. Whereas according to Victorian floriography, magnolias speak to our dignity, nobility, and pride. Love that. One of the aspects um, in the research that I did 
was kind of the variety of the symbolism or deity or resonance depending on the color. So this got me thinking about using different magnolias in color magic or for setting different intentions if folks are wanting to work with this plant themselves. Um, and I also found information about including magnolias in wedding bouquets because of their enduring beauty as symbol of strength and love and as a representation of love eternal. Also, I read, and I, I couldn't really find a source from where this was coming from, but that the pink petals are associated with um, Aphrodite, Greek goddess of love, and the white petals, the moon goddess Selene. Um, regardless of origin, it seemed lovely, so wanted to include that. <laughs> I love all these. I love flower lore. Mm -hmm. So should we go ahead and introduce our magical guest today? Yes, listeners, we're super excited about this one. Today, we're joined by Madame Pamita. And Madame Pamita is a Ukrainian diaspora witch, teacher, author, candlemaker, spellcaster, and tarot reader. She has a popular YouTube channel for teaching witchcraft. She hosts Magic and the Law of Attraction and Baba Yaga's Magic Podcasts. She's the author of Baba Yaga's Book of Witchcraft, The Book of Candle Magic, and Madame Pamita's Magical Tarot. She is also the proprietress of the online spiritual apothecary, The Parlor of Wonders, and lives in Santa Monica, California. You can find her at parlorofwonders.com. Listeners, if you love Baba Yaga, you are going to be over the moon with this episode. We talk about embroidery as a spell, lessons from the crossroads, and what to expect if we're ever invited into Baba Yaga's magical hut on Chicken Legs. Madam Pamita joined us today via Zoom. Welcome back to the Magic and Alchemy podcast. I'm Kristen Lizenby. And I'm Kate Ballou. And today we have a very special guest with us, Madam Pamita. Thank you for being here. I'm so excited to be here and talk to you about Slavic magic, Ukrainian magic. Yeah. Thank you for spending the day with us. We really appreciate it. To start things off, would you mind sharing your big three in astrology with us? And then maybe a little bit about you and your work and your magic in your own words. Okay. So um, I have a Cancer sun and a Leo rising and a Taurus moon. Um, and so that makes me, I think, a pretty balanced. And I also have air, I have Gemini in my chart and uh, other spaces. And so I have a pretty balanced chart little bit of everything in there. And do you want me to share about my, what do you want me to tell you about my magic? I don't even know. <laughs> Just who are you? Just who are you yeah. for our listeners who've never met you before? Well, I'm a witch. I'm a um, Ukrainian diaspora, which I, um, my grandparents were from Ukraine and in uh, circumstances uh, quite similar to what we're seeing now in Ukraine. They left and came to Philadelphia and my mom was born in Philadelphia and uh, I was handed down a lot of um, magical practices from my mom who got them from my grandmother. So um, that was the impetus for a book that I've written called Baba Yaga's Book of Witchcraft. Um, I've also written a few other books. I'm an author. I've written um, a book called Madame Pemita's Magical Tarot and another book called The Book of Candle Magic. 
Uh, I'm a candle making witch. I love teaching. My super passion is teaching about magic, folk magic and witchcraft. I'm a folk magic person for sure. I'm an animist and a spiritualist who sees the life force and works with spirits, sees life force in all things, uh, living and all natural things have life force. Uh, so I work in sort of those realms. Um, solitary practitioner, have a lot of uh, influences from American folk magic, hoodoo, um, and of course my Slavic folk magic, Celtic folk magic, which is my dad's uh, side of the family. So got a little bit of everything in there. Yeah. So you mentioned your book, Baba Yaga's Book of Witchcraft, Slavic Magic from the Witch of the Woods. And in the introduction, you write, she is truly a witch without borders, and that she is a famous old crone who ate children, just like the witch in the story of Hansel and Gretel, except far more exciting, flew around in a giant mortar, and had a sentient house that walked around on chicken legs. So for our listeners who might not know, who is Baba Yaga and how did you first come to know her and her story? Well, Baba Yaga is very, 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 very famous for Eastern European people. I mean, it's like she's the most famous witch and more famous than I think even the Wicked Witch of the West is for Americans or people that, you know, grew up with the Wizard of Oz. She's just super famous. She's a character that shows up in a lot of um, folk tales. Uh, She is never really the main character. She always shows up as either a a villain. Sometimes she shows up as a villain. Sometimes she shows up as an ambiguous character who can go either way, good or bad. Um, And then sometimes she's a donor. She gives um, gifts or boons or magical information or or, uh, magical tools to the hero or the heroine of a story. Now, understanding that um, for the vast majority of people around the world, not just in Eastern Europe, but for the vast majority of people around the world, um, oral tradition was the way that information was passed on. Most people were not literate. You know, you had city people who were perhaps um, literate. Wealthy people would be literate. But the average person, farmers, rural people would not be literate. In fact, my grandparents never read or wrote. They were not um, literate. So, um Understanding that, that in, in um, sort of that culture, you would find that stories would be passed down that would transmit information. These are one of the ways that we can find out information about pagan spiritual practices and older animistic spiritual practices because those stories have encoded information in it. And once you start to understand that information, you can start you know, ethnologists start to uh, extract and pull out information about practices based on evidence that they find and things like folktales and stories that they find. Now, oftentimes she's misnamed as a Russian uh, witch or Russian folklore figure. She is part of Russian folklore, but she's well, that's only one of the countries and only one of the um, uh, cultures that we find her in. Every Eastern European country has a story with, uh, or stories, multiple stories with a Baba Yaga character. She could be called Yedzi Baba or um, Baba Yaha or something else. She might have a different name, but she still represents that same crone, very, very powerful crone figure who lives in the woods. So, um, 
as we find this information, you know, like there's these stories being told for thousands of years. And then what happened was um, uh, this Russian author, Alexander Afanasyev, saw that the Brothers Grimm were having great success in documenting and writing down the Germanic fairy tales that they found in folklore that they found from going and talking to people, the average person, they would be story gatherers, you know, and so they were gathering these stories, publishing them, writing them down, publishing them, and had great success. So he said, hey, I'm going to do that for Russian folk tales and fairy tales. So our first sort of modern, which would have been 1800s, modern documentation of Baba Yaga was through these Russian fairy tales. So yes, she is Russian, but she's not exclusively Russian. So sometimes people think she's a Russian figure. She's a Slavic figure, not a Russian figure. So we find her stories in Poland, Belarus, Ukraine, Yugoslavia, Serbia, you know, uh, or former Yugoslavian countries, Serbia, Croatia, and so on. We find her really in a lot of Eastern European uh, and Slavic cultures. But there's also sort of correspondences that sort of overlap even in Central European and even Western European lore. So we find in Germanic, you know, Germanic countries, we find uh, Frau Perkta or Frau Berta, who is also this witch who comes around and punishes you if you're bad or, you know, does something. So this has a correspondence and has been around for a long time. That age and how far and how, how widely she's known really shows us that she's an old, 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 old spirit that really is probably one of the oldest spirits that is honored or or identified or worshipped. She's the witch of the woods. She's there as a, the forest guardian, um, powerful crone figure, uh, forest guardian, and yeah. So that's a very long, <laughs> rambling version <laughs> of what she is. But um, at least that gives you a, an idea because it's a lot. You know, there's even more I could tell you. So, yeah. People will have to read the book. <laughs> <laughs> she's she's a um, character. I think when I have, in my research, I've, I've sort of deduced that in the oldest stories, she's either an ambiguous character who could go either way. She could punish you if you were disrespectful to her, or if you honor her, she could reward you, or she could give you be a donor who gives you something. It's more in the post-Christian times that we find um, that she's demonic or ogre-like or those sorts of things, because that's what happens to older pagan spirits. They either get subsumed into being a part of a saint or some other thing that's a part of the establishment's religion, or they're demonized and, and, and called demons or called evil and so on, because there's no place to put them in the, let's say the Christian pantheon, which she would not have a corresponding saint, you know, there's no way you could make her into a saint. So, yeah. I mean, it's obvious she's very important to you. And I'm curious how you work with Baba Yaga in your craft. So, in you know, I'm a spiritualist, so I work with spirits often in all sorts of ways, um, you know, house spirits and, you know, spirits of nature and so on. And then more formal spirits also. Uh, I, I have to say, I, they seem to approach me. So anyway, so as we talk about working with her, she's um, 
you know, when I say she's a donor spirit or an ambiguous spirit, she's not a pushover. She's definitely a spirit that is going to challenge you. And I often say that she's like an Olympics coach. An Olympics coach is going to say to you, great, uh, we're going to get you a gold medal in gymnastics. However, you're going to have to come here and work out 15 hours a day, practice 15 hours a day, seven days a week, and then you'll get there. And of course, you know, a young athlete will go, oh, this is great. I'm going to be in the Olympics. But, you know, probably halfway through that training or a few weeks into that training, they're like, oh, my God, why did I agree to do this? But if they push themselves, they they get there. And just like the Olympic coach is not going to waste their time with someone that doesn't think that they have potential. She's going to give you challenges that you may believe that you cannot succeed in that challenge, but she knows you can succeed in the challenge. So when you're like, oh my gosh, I can't do any more. She's going to say you can do it. So she's tough. She's like a tough grandma, but she's there not to punish you or to thwart you or to put impediments in your way. It's not, that's not the tasks that she gives you or the challenges that she gives you. She gives you challenges that in the end will produce, um, an initiation of some kind. So that's what an initiation is about. You have to go through testing and you have to go through these things, not because they're trying to keep you out, but because, you know, the person that's the initiator wants to see, are you really committed to this path or are you just dabbling? If you're dabbling, come back another time. And I do think that the way, you know, she in so many ways represents that initiatory spirit who's going to initiate you into very, um, I would say very deep magic that you can only get through experiential stuff. So for me, this book was my test because halfway through this book, I was like, why did I even agree to this book? Because I was having to research in Ukrainian, which is not my native language. I had to learn how to read Cyrillic. I had to find resources in that were so deeply buried because we have these layers of not only witchcraft being, you know, uh, and you also have the layer of Christianity, but then underneath that layer of Christianity, you also have the layer of Soviet, 80 years of Soviet suppression of anything mystical, magical, or religious. And then below that, you have, um, you know, things like wars and famines and all kinds of things. And and the attempt to, for me, to to wipe out Ukrainian, con, you know, culture completely. So I had to dig so, so, so deeply and work so hard to find this information about these practices. So it was really a crazy, hard, hard, hard experience. But the book is like, to me, the beautiful prize at the end is this book that I love so much and that I've gotten so much amazing feedback, not only from English-speaking people of Slavic descent, but also Ukrainian people that are there are like, thank you for writing this and documenting this because there isn't anything out there in any language. So, Yeah, I know for myself, my family is Polish and I've just struggled to find, uh, you know, Polish witchcraft books. So to see the Slavic magic, the Baba Yaga told in this way, like I'm so grateful for that. Yeah, and what I found too is in my research and in looking that all the Slavic countries are about 90% of the magical practices are 
maybe even more than 90% have correspondences. So for example, in Ukraine, we have um, Baba, Baba, Baba Sheptucha, which is a, a whisperer, healer that whispers incantations. But they have the same thing in Poland, the same thing in Belarus, you know, they have it. So we look at these other countries and they have corresponding things. The words are going to be different. But mm-hmm. honestly, I can tell you, if you wanted to find out information, all you have to do is go type in the Ukrainian word in Google Translate, translate it into Polish, and then do a Google search for that word in Polish, Uh and you're going to find tons of information about the Polish version of that. And I bet you 90% of the stuff in there or more is going to have... um, a translation and a correspondence, especially in Poland, because I'm my my grandparents lived in um, Halicina, which is um, Galicia, which was Poland and Ukraine and Western Ukraine back before 1915. So that's what you know. So the Polish and and Ukrainian mixture was very very strong there in my parents' village, my grandparents' village. There were Polish people, there were Ukrainian Russian people, which were Ukrainian people. And uh, there were people of Jewish faith, uh, people were uh, Roman Catholic and Greek Orthodox. So we had everybody living in this little village, all exchanging information, mixing and mingling, sharing wisdom, and all of that was happening. So, yeah. Amazing. I'm going to definitely do that. Thank you. Um, And you just talked a little bit about the crone also, and Babiaga being a crone figure. So what is your relationship with the crone archetype? Well, as I was getting, you know, have going through menopause and having that experience of going into my own crone ages, decades, whatever, um, I'm I always looking to like, who are my role models? Who are my my hashtag goals for this stage of my life? Is there an archetype? Is there, um, you know, a person? And in our culture, there's not a lot of there's not a lot of elder women um, role models. I mean, they're celebrities sort of, but they're just entertainers. We don't really have loads of what I would call like real powerful spiritual figures, you know? Um, But Baba Yaga is one. So I I got this, I mean, this even goes back to what I was talking about, the Baba Sheptucha, which is the, the whisper, the grandmother whispers. The grandmother whispers are women that are older middle age or going or have gone through menopause. And the most respected ones are the oldest ones, like the ones who are real old and have loads of experience and many, many years of practicing this. It's not to say that you can't be a, a young person, male or female, and do this practice. I'm not saying that's not the case, but traditionally it was the older women of the village who had the sort of knack or the natural talent for this. And they were trained by the other elder women, you know, their grandmother or their mother would train them on on how to do this healing practice. So that's what my grandmother did. My grandmother was um, a Baba Shiptuha. She was doing um, healing with pouring beeswax into water and um, doing all kinds of healing work in that way, making motonki and doing all those things. So, um, yeah, so that's, as I was getting older, I was like, oh, well, that's when she became, I think she came forward for me more. You know, when you hear about her as a young girl, I was hearing, you know, stories of Baba Yaga when I was little. There was no time that I don't remember knowing, not knowing about her. But 
Um, but I, she felt very other. Now I feel very close to her. Like we've spent lots of time together. I've spent lots of time with her spirit. And so she's like a teacher, um, mentor to me. So, yeah. And there's so many beautiful stories and so much wisdom in this book. So what do you hope that readers take away from this beautiful book you've created? Well, I think if I were to to talk about Slavic magic and Ukrainian magic in particular, there's one characteristic. I mean, this also goes is true, very much true for Polish magic as well. That it, it, these this is the magic of simple people who were living rural lives. You didn't really find this kind of folk magic in the cities. There may have been other kinds of magic going on, but this is definitely rural and definitely folk magic. And one of the characteristics of the rural home was that magic wasn't separate from life. Like magic was interwoven into every aspect of your life. So the example I give in the book is if you had a spoon, a serving spoon for your porridge or your food or whatever made out of wood, it would have been carved with um carved by hand, of course, and decorated. The decorations were beautiful, but the decorations were also symbolic of blessings, of abundance, prosperity, health, whatever it is that you wanted, protection, whatever it is that you wanted for your family as you were serving this food. So everything that could be decorated, everything that could be charged magically was charged magically. And every act that you would do from baking bread to tending the fire to stitching and doing anything like that would be um, influenced by this, um, you know, this magic that was just per- permeated your life. So I always say everything in Ukrainian magic, everything in the Ukrainian home, traditional Ukrainian home, was beautiful, useful, and magical. There was no separation between magic and your daily life. It was in every single part. There were lots of rules, do this, don't do this, and so on and so forth. But you were highly conscious of magic. And this existed, of course, uh, pre-Christianity. And then when Christianity came in in 988, it still existed. So all the pagan traditions existed, but they tacked on Mother Mary or Jesus or whoever, whatever saint on top of it. But you can see it in there and you know it's in there. And they'll do things like, incantations where they're calling in the sun and the moon and the stars. Uh, Oh, and then we're going to call in Jesus, Mary, and Joseph too. At the beginning, we'll tack them on and then we'll go into our sun and moon and stars incantation. And that's the way that um, double faith where there was the pagan faith sort of mingled with the Christianity. So we still see pagan practices. And, And interestingly, Ukrainian people still acknowledge that these are pagan practices. They're like the pisunki, the the decorated eggs are pagan eggs. We bring them into into Easter, but they're pagan eggs, and they acknowledge it. They don't pretend like a, they don't have Christmas trees. Well, they do now, but um, like we do in the states, Christmas tree is Christian. No, it isn't. It's pagan. <laughs> Come on. <laughs> So we always love to ask, uh, what is your relationship to the word witch and what has your journey been like with the word and what does it mean to you right now? 
Well, I grew up in a magical household. We did magic, but we did Catholic magic because that's what my grandmother did. That's what my mom did. So they were going to church, church going people, but they were doing these pagan practices. So there wasn't, I always say my first candle magic, my first candle magic I ever did was a little girl lighting a candle in a church. And when I go to churches in Europe, these beautiful old gorgeous churches that are built on sacred ancient sacred sites. When I go to those places, I always light a candle in church, you know, because I'm doing candle magic and that's really what it is. So um, I remember being 10 years old and reading in some book somewhere that um, witches would, um, when the full moon was out, witches would do three turns clockwise and bow to the moon and so I would go out in my backyard and I would do that. I don't think I did it every month, but I would do it whenever I noticed the full moon was up in the sky. And at the same time at 10, my mom bought me my first tarot deck. Um, we were in Salem, Massachusetts, and she said, do you want a souvenir? And I said, I want that. And I picked out a tarot deck. So mm-hmm. I can't really say that there wasn't a time that I wasn't oriented toward that, but it would would have been probably in the 90s when I began calling myself a witch. I thought I was attracted to witchcraft and attracted to uh, that path. But when I really began to study was in the, um, would have been the late eighties, early nineties. I started really studying with a group of women, you know, and being trained in uh, feminist Wicca. And that's where I got that start and then um, branched off from there to really my own spiritualist animist uh, folk magic path from there, solitary path from there. So, yeah. Yeah. So in the introduction, you share that the book's journey begins with a story like all good journeys do. Can you speak a little bit about the magic of storytelling and about your role as a storyteller? Well, I um, liberally borrowed the story that is sort of interwoven throughout the book. So each chapter begins with like an episode from a this particular fairy tale. And I liberally borrowed from the fairy tale, Vasilisa the Wise, Vasilisa the Brave, Vasilisa the Fair, Vasilisa the Beautiful. They have all those names for this story that's been told time and time again. It's a very famous story with Baba Yaga in it. But I also brought in elements from other tales that she um, appears in. So it sort of blends a bunch of different tales loosely on this framework of this... um, particular story. The particular story, Vasilisa the Fair, is uh, is an initiation story. So the young girl has to go to Baba Yaga because she's been sent by her evil stepmother to steal some fire from Baba Yaga. And so she lives with Baba Yaga and earns the fire from her and then takes it back and I don't want to spoil the ending of the story, but then <laughs> takes care of business with that fire. So um, what, what I found was, again, like when you're working with spirits, you don't, it's, it's a two-way conversation. So this is the ma- amazing thing that I want to share. And I'll talk about the storytelling because when you work with spirits, they understand a, Uh, a more holistic view of time, present, past, and future. So the impetus for this book began three years ago, more than three years ago. And when I was getting this urge 
that was really, I think, a sort of co-prodding by my grandmother and by um, Baba Yaga. They were saying, make this book, make this book, do this, do this. I had no inkling that we would be in the situation now where Ukraine is in the front of the news, any of that. If you understand book publishing, it even after you turn in your manuscript, it's a year before you see that your book sees the light of day. So the fact that this book came out exactly when Ukraine was in the news, people were interested in Ukrainian culture. We were trying to preserve Ukrainian culture and the Slavic world was at the center of everyone's attention is nothing if not divine timing and the spirit guiding you because you need to do it now because you're going to need it in two, two years from now, three years from now. So um, the book itself is, is created in a way so that we have um, a story that you follow along in each chapter um, a segment where Baba Yaga shares information about practices, and then I relate it to modern day practice. What can you do? How can you work with this in the modern day? Because we don't have looms in our house or a, a wood stove necessarily in our house. Some people do, but you know, it's not so common for most people. So, um, so the the fairy tale. As I was doing this, the fairy tale sort of wove itself in. And that was a way that I could share about Baba Yaga without making one chapter be about her. She needs to be really experienced. And the best way to experience it is to hear a tale and you identify with the protagonist of this tale, Vaselina. You identify with her because you, as you're reading this book, are being initiated as well. So as you go through each of the chapters, there's initiation that happens just like it's happening for the character in the book. And that is the experience that I didn't sit there and plan this out. It just happened as I was writing it. And so I always think of that being like that channeling your muse or channeling, you know, something because I didn't plan it. But then when I look back at it, I'm like, oh, dang, that's what's happening there is that the reader is being initiated by following along the story and identifying with the heroine of the story. So, yeah. The bones that are speaking. The yeah, the bones are speaking. I Yeah, I don't know. It does, I don't even know if that answers the question, but that's what, ta- I think tales both carry on. You can secret so much information, encoded information in a tale and go, oh, it's just a fairy tale. We're not practicing that practice that you're, you've forbidden. We're going to encode it in this fairy tale so that people don't forget. But it's also this initiation process because you identify with the hero or the heroine in a story, you know? So you get to have an encounter by simply by reading the book, you're having an encounter with Baba Yaga because you're having it through this heroine that you connect with. And a reminder of intuition, like through the doll and the process too. I think it's so important. Yeah, the doll, the practice, you know, early on in the story, so she, her, she, Vaselina's mother dies. And so the mother makes her a doll before she dies. The doll is the Motanka, and a Motanka is a spirit doll. This is a really, they have them in Poland, since we're talking about Poland too, they have them in Poland, they have them in Ukraine. But these are dolls that will house your ancestor spirits. I think that we find 
more of the pagan part of it popping up in Ukraine than in Poland because there's been such the Roman Catholic pressure put on, on you know, Polish culture, Polish people. Um, so the motonka that, that Vasilina carries is the house for her mother's spirit. It's so her mother can be with her to be the mentor, advisor, and guide while she's um, navigating uh, tricky magical stuff. So somebody telling you do this or trust yourself or, or it's like, it can be like your intuition. It can be that, um, or that inner voice inside of you, but it can also be your spirits talking to you and telling you, keep going, you know, you're going to get there. So. Yeah, we recently did an episode on curses and protection magic, and we spoke about like enchanted poppets and dolls. And so I wanted to ask you about the Motonka, uh, because from when I was reading, it has some really interesting characteristics um, that set it apart, I would say, from others. And one that stood out to me was it's never meant to have a face, right? There's no face on the Motonka. Uh, could you talk a little bit about that, why that is? Well, um, it, it's so interesting because in folk magic and in Western European and the Americas, and in particular North America, we find poppets. You know, this is the evidence that they found, for example, the Salem Witch Trials, they found a poppet. So a doll in the Western European tradition was used for sympathetic magic so that I would make a doll that represented someone else, just like we see in the movies, the voodoo doll where someone sticks pins Mm -hmm. and then like, oh, my shoulder hurts, right? So that poppet can be, you know, it's, it's not just for malefic magic. It can be used for healing someone. It can be used for getting someone to fall in love with you. It can be used to influence someone in some way. So it doesn't have to be for malefic magic. It's definitely coercive magic. There's no doubt about that, but it's not always about destruction and cursing and harming someone. That's just what we see in the movies, right? It can be used for that, but that's not exclusive. However, a motanka is never attached to a spirit, living or dead. It is meant to be a temporary house for your ancestor spirits to come and join you in your home or workplace. I mean, I have one sitting right there. So it was the reason there's no face on it is because it was believed that a face would um, could attach then a spirit because it was too lifelike. It was too naturalistic. And so a spirit that would enter into a doll with a face would get stuck and trapped there. Mm-hmm. And one that had this crest, which is the cross across the face or a blank face, um, was far enough from a human, you know, replica that you wouldn't get attached to it. Also, the eyes, you know, there's that saying, the eyes are the windows of the soul. They definitely wouldn't put eyes on a doll because the eyes would be a place that it would believe that you could suck your spirit into the doll. So without having a face, it's not going to, it's a, it's a sort of a neutral territory that a spirit, an ancestor spirit, a loving ancestor spirit can inhabit in your home to protect you, to be a guardian, to bring blessings and so on to your home. Lots of different uses for motonki. They're not just for that. They could be to um, bring a new baby into your home or to um, 
make you uh, more productive and efficient in your work. I mean, there's all kinds of reasons that we make create motonki, but they're houses for the uh, ancestor spirits. Yeah, very different. I would love to talk a little bit too about the magical practice of embroidery. So you have a section in the book called Magical Stitches where you write, your clothing is one of your layers of magic, a physical manifestation of what you wish to wrap your body in. So can you talk a little bit about the history of embroidery and clothing and magic and ritual? So um, one of the things that that um, chapter is the first chapter. And if people want to take a look at that chapter, um, they can go to Baba Yaga's book of witchcraft.com, which goes, leads them to a page on my site. And there's a sample there where they can see the introduction, the table of contents and the first chapter for free and sample it and check it out. That chapter is a great one to be the free one too, because it has so many um, interesting and useful things that you can do, such as creating talismans, embroidered talismans, um, through uh, you know, through cross stitch in particular, cross stitch itself, you know, is really identified with the Vishivanki, the the embroidered blouses that Ukrainians wear. Polish people also have embroidery. All the Slavic countries have embroidery. Um, we find that the embroidery is not just again; it's that thing what I that I mentioned before, where it's beautiful, it's useful, and it's magical. So the embroidery is beautiful. It also is covering your body and it also, you know, protecting you and keeping you warm or keeping the sun off of you. But it's also magical. Anything that could be made magical was made magical. So here's an example of something that we use every day, our clothing, but it would be imbued with magic because of the embroidery. So the embroidery um, had, there were definitely sort of structures with the embroidery, you would have embroidery along all the openings of the garment, the wrist, the neck, and the bottom of the garment, oftentimes, because those were the places where uh, a curse or evil eye, negativity of some kind could enter and get underneath and get to you. So by creating those borders, you were creating a delineation and, and saying and protecting yourself and saying, all negativity is going to stay off of me. Then for men, we see the embroidery, which can be flowers, fruits. I mean, what we would sometimes characterize as feminine embroidery, but not considered feminine at all. It was considered magical. Fruits, flowers, more modern um, symbols, uh, squares, triangles, circles, and things like that are more ancient symbols representing different characteristics of uh, fertility and things like that they could be put onto the front of the chest for the men's garment on the sleeves for the women's garment. You'd find heavy embroidery on the front for the men and on the sleeves for the women. And so, um, yeah, so this was another magical talisman that had this quality, but it also had other qualities too. It could identify what village you were from because of certain village, just like um, I think like nowadays people wear sports team shirts and you go, oh, you're from Philly because, you know, the Phillies are in the World Series right now. <laughs> My mom's from Philly, so I have to give a shout out. So you're from <laughs> Philly because you're wearing a Philly shirt. You know, this is great. So, um, but it's like it identifies you so that when you you could see somebody else and know that they were in your village or they were not from your village. And you can even identify the different areas and even villages because of the different styles of embroidery. And that's a fabulous, unique thing too, 
you know, that we have these different colors. Some, some are white on white, some are multicolored, some are red and black on white, you know, so we have all these different characteristics of the embroidery, not only magical, not only beautiful and protective, but also um, uh, sort of identifying your clan, your tribe, your group, you know, your village. This is going to be my new test to bring anything into my apartment. Beautiful, useful, magical. (laughs) Exactly. Well, you just take the things that are um, useful and hopefully you find a useful thing that's also beautiful, but how you can get creative and say, how can I imbue it with magic? Is it painting some designs on it? Is it, um, you know, using incense on it to imbue it with a certain energy. I mean, there's, there's all kinds of things that you can do. And I think that's one of the characteristics of my life and my practice is like, how much magic can I squeeze into every day and every act that I do, you know, you can always do more, you know? So, but the great thing about that is, is that you can live your life without having to take a break to do a big, massive, uh, special ritual. You can do those things, but you can do these daily things that are constantly uh, building magical energy around whatever it is that you're focused on or your magic. So it makes it easy. You also talk about crossroads in your book. So how does crossroads magic show up in your craft? And do you have any advice for someone who's new to these energies? So there's a big, there's a, there's a couple really sort of hallmark characteristics of um, Slavic folk magic. One of them is that there are spirits everywhere. Spirits are everywhere. And the spirits, either you would avoid them if they were real, you know, iffy, or if you could, you know, if they weren't necessary, they were a sort of ambiguous spirit, you wanted to have a quid pro quo. If you make offerings to the Lisovuk, who is the forest spirit, you could make an offering to him and then you could move through the forest without getting lost or getting attacked by an animal or have a good mushroom hunt or whatever it is that you were doing in the forest. So this act of creating relationships with spirits was super prevalent in Slavic magic. The other hallmark of Slavic magic is uh, the idea of liminality. So this this is huge. It sort of is like this framework that all Slavic magic fits under, which is there are liminal times and liminal spaces. So liminality means things are neither one thing or another. They're kind of in between. So an example of liminal times would be um, sunrise. It's like dawn. It's dark moving into daylight. It's a liminal time. Sunset daylight moving into dark, it's a liminal time. So liminal liminal times in people's lives, when you're engaged, but you're not yet married, when you're a newborn, you just have come out of your mother's belly, and now you're moving into the world of regular living humans. So these liminal times were seen as very open to magic. And for most people, that meant I want to be protected. There's also things like liminal spaces. So liminal spaces could be things like, um, we find this in video games now, like abandoned areas that were once inhabited, but they're not gone back to nature, but they're, uh, they're not inhabited. They're a space that could be inhabited, but they're not. In Slavic culture, that would be the Lesnia or the Banya, the 
the sauna because you had a sauna house that was like a spooky garage, no windows. You go in this cabin, there's probably, you know, spiders and things there. And it's a little bit sketchy and scary, right? So it's a liminal space. So you could do magic in the bathhouse or the sauna. Um, The crossroads is also one of those liminal spaces, right? I mean, it makes sense. You're neither south, north, east, or west. You're in the middle of this liminal space. But we don't see this exclusively in Slavic magic. We see this in all kinds of magic. We see it in uh, you know North American magic, in hoodoo, in Celtic magic. We see it show up over and over again, which shows that it's very, 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 very old. This is very old magic, this idea. We even have documentation of um, Greek um, goddess Hecate being at the crossroads. So this is for millennia has been seen as a liminal magical place. The definition of liminality is what Slavic, I think, lore brings to it, is that we see it as a liminal place. So the average person moving through a crossroads would want to move through very quickly. You wouldn't loiter there or you wouldn't dawdle there because it was a a place where spirits would gather, both good spirits and maybe hungry spirits or spirits that were problematic or trickster spirits. So you would move through it very quickly. You wouldn't dawdle. However, as a witch or magic practitioner who wants to have access to that liminal space, this can be a place of very powerful magic because we, an average person, the veil between the worlds, we want to keep that veil closed, but for a spiritualist or a witch or a magical practitioner, we want that We want to have access to the spirit world. And so we find divination being done at the crossroads, all kinds of magic where you're getting rid of something like a a curse or a disease or something like that illness. Um, It's also the place where you can do spells, incantations. Um, There's tons of them. One of the things that I found very fun and unique is this concept of counting crossroads so that you would come to different crossroads for different wishes. So if you want had a certain wish for money, you would go to a certain number of crossroads and then do your money spell, which I found fascinating because I'd never seen that anywhere else. Um, but there's all kinds of... And then also, too, the number of roads that go into a crossroads um, would sort of define what kind of magic you could do there. So a Y-shaped crossroad, very magical. A T-shaped crossroad, not even considered a crossroad. That's like a dead end. You wouldn't do magic at a T-shaped road. So these ideas, these concepts are very rich. It's not just go to the crossroads and leave your spell remains there. It's much more nuanced than that. And I, and I found I could fill a whole chapter, a big chapter, about just about crossroads magic. Baba Yaga rides a mortar and pestle through the sky, and you write a lot about the magic of the mortar and pestle in the book called A Stupa, I believe. Is Mm -hmm. that right? Yeah. And you write, um, when I began to learn witchcraft, I saw how powerful a mortar and pestle could be, not only for the practical matter of grinding herbs and resins, but as a tool to imbue your ingredients with magic. Many of our listeners may be familiar with a mortar and pestle as a powerful tool, but any advice for working with this tool for beginners? And why do you think Baba Yaga chooses this as her mode of transportation? Well, um, 
the first thing I think as I was like when I was young witchling way back when, I just thought of the mortar and pestle being a practical tool. You know, we need to grind up herbs so that we can burn them more efficiently. You know, you can't burn a big, uh, you know, star anise pod on a charcoal, but if you grind up a star anise pod, you can, you know, burn that powder on a charcoal quite easily. So I looked at it as a more practical tool. As I started to get into this book, I mean, gosh, I would say I started to sort of have it uh, see some of this, but when I really saw it was when I started to write about this because... Uh, Baba Yaga is known, one of her sort of hallmarks, she has a couple sort of hallmark things. Number one, she lives in a house that stands on chicken legs and it's a sentient house that lives on a little hut that is on chicken legs. And so that's very emblematic of her, but also her flying through the air inside a mortar or, or moving, you know, going somewhere, either on the ground or through the air in a giant mortar and pushing herself along with a pestle and sweeping away her tracks with a broom is very typical. We see this in many, many stories. So the first thing that I thought when I used to hear these stories, I would go like, oh, well, she would make a, you know, a mortar and pestle, you know, she would grow one or she had a special one or something like that. In my research, though, I discovered that actually there's this there's this giant mortar and pestle that you would find in little villages. So if your village was, you know, not big enough to have a miller and a millstone, which is expensive, and you have to have a dedicated person to work on it, that would be something that only a big, big, big village or city would have. But little villages couldn't afford that. What they would do would be to take a tree trunk, hollow it out like a big bowl, and then take a smaller tree trunk and have that be the pestle that would pound things that you needed lots of, like uh, when you're pounding rye for flour or wheat for flour. You can't do it in a little mortar and pestle. You need something big to grind so you get enough flour. So that would be the way they would do that. And there would be this house called the Stupajata, which is the um, mortar and pestle house mortar and pestle hut that would be shared by an entire village. So these giant mortar and pestles are like three feet tall and maybe two feet wide. So you can imagine a little, a little person, a little old crone could fit inside of that very easily. So that wasn't such an alien concept to have this idea that you could have a human being inside a mortar and a pestle. Now, the other thing is, and learning about mortar and pestle, it's it's a tool of transformation. You are destroying something to create something. And it is so emblematic of Baba Yaga. She destroys to create. This is like powerful goddess energy of destruction and creation. And so that cycle of destruction and creation is what she's all about, is that transformation and change. So we can then start to use the mortar and pestle as um, conceptually, what do we want to change in our life when we're working with it? How do we want the change to happen? And that's what witchcraft is using your will to change your life and the way you want to want it to go having control having power over your life empowerment so there couldn't be anything more witchy than a mortar pestle in my opinion you know when you start to really think about it and see what it symbolizes you really get into that well i know kate and i could talk with you about baba yaga and magic all day but we're running out of time so what final words of wisdom do you or baba yaga have for our listeners today 
Well, I think that um, I would say that if you want to develop a relationship with the spirit of Baba Yaga, and I do get people asking me that question, I always say, be prepared because you're going to be tested. Because if you go in with her, you're walking into her hut. If you're going into her hut, it's an initiation hut. So don't go there if you don't want to be tested, tried, and reach a higher level or a deeper level of your magic. If you're ready for that or you're being called to it, I mean, many people feel that pull. I think that's your sign that you're ready for that. But go in with preparation and determination and that feeling um, that you're going to, you you can do more than you think you can do. Because that's what Baba Yaga would say to you. You're better than you think you are, and you can do more than you think you can do. And I'm going to show you that you can. So, yeah. Thank you for that. And before we go, what upcoming projects are you excited about, and where can our listeners find your work? Well, I have um, tons and tons. One of my passions is being a teacher, and I have tons of Slavic magic classes that I teach. And you can find out about all the classes that I teach by going to witchcraftworkshops.com. That'll take you to the page on my website. Um, but my website itself, you can also find it there by going to parlorofwonders.com and then clicking on the learn tab and then you'll see it. So um, Parlor of Wonders is where people can find me. I've got loads of Slavic magic workshops coming up. If people are interested in Slavic magic, I'm also, I do a new moon and a full moon um, workshops. Um, new moon workshops are candle workshops. Full moon workshops are anything other than candles. And we get, you get a spell kit sent to you and we gather over zoom and we do it together and it's so so much fun just my I love doing that and this is um something that is near and dear to my heart so I hope um to see some of the listeners over there experiencing some workshop and some hands-on workshops over zoom yeah maybe Kristen and I too I'm like wait I'm gonna google this right now Thank you so much, Madam Pamita and listeners, for joining us today on Magic and Alchemy, a podcast from Tamed Wild. Again, we're Kate Ballou and Kristen Lizenby. You can find us online at K8Ballou and at East and Alchemy. Send us all of your questions, comments, or just say hello via email at podcast at tamedwild.com. You can view all the amazing offerings from Tamed Wild on their Instagram at Tamed Wild or on the blog tamedwild.com. Tune into next week's episode where we will begin a special series of storytelling. Just a reminder that magic and alchemy are always available to those who know where to look for it. So mode it be or something better. Until next time. <laughs>